Welcome to Deep North with your host, Rachel Nolan. My guest today is Shane Canute, the Catters Australian Party member for Hill. Shane's been a member of the Queensland Parliament since 2004, serving across three North Queensland seats, Charters Towers, Dalrymple and now Hill. His seat's been abolished twice and he's been in three parties. The Nationals, where he started, which then went on to merge with the LNP and now the Catters Australian Party. Shane's not at all a loud character, but he is really genuinely well-liked in the parliament, and he does have a pretty extraordinary election record. He now has the sixth safest seat in Queensland. A lot of Queensland politics is really North Queensland politics, and there's obviously something about that that Shane knows and the rest of us don't. That's why I wanted to start this podcast, Deep North, with an interview with Shane Canute. Welcome. So let's just start with, I guess, a bit of your story. Um, I know that you played football when you were younger. I know that you've grown up sort of right around North Queensland. But can you tell me your story? You know, tell me kind of who you were as a young person, where you grew up, and then I'm just fascinated to know why you joined the National Party and why you decided to get into Queensland politics. Yeah, thank you, Rachel, and uh, it's a great, great honour to be um, here. And um, you know, I was I was born in Tully, um, at the uh, on the banks of the Cardston Village, and my father was in the electricity industry. We then moved to Collinsville, which is um, uh, a coal mining town, but and also a very union town. Yes, a very union town, and it was sort of like a humble beginning. But uh, Collinsville was uh, something that um, it it changed my life, but it sort of prepared me for what was to come, you know, further on down the track, um, you know, with a coal mining community. And I had the the privilege of seeing the marches down the street and the strikes. But uh, in those days that you could go fishing and hunting, you could walk straight across the hill. And uh, it was just um, the way... It was a way of life for everyone. You could go to the Bowen River and you could also catch a, a barramundi, you know, to a brim. And uh, we also did a lot of uh, pig hunting and pig shooting. Yeah. And it was those little foundations that, um, you know, had laid something that uh, prepared, prepared us for bigger and better things, you know, few, down the track, particularly learning how to play basketball in Collinsville, learning how to play cricket, learning how to play rugby league, but um, associating with um, miners' kids yep. and uh, also power station uh, families' kids. So how many kids in your family? Because one of the interesting things about you is you're not the first Canute to be getting around in Queensland politics. Um, your older brother, Jeff, was a One Nation member from about 98 when there was the big One Nation swing. Um, so how many kids were there in your family? Well, the oldest is Jeff, then there's Troy, and then there's myself and my sister, younger sister, Lara, and my younger sister, Heidi, which we celebrated the 50th birthday here in the Parliament House there in the Strangers Dining Room there a few days back. Which is a beautiful place. So I want to know how that politics affected your worldview. And when you left school, what did you then go off and do for a living? Well, it was a combination of what I did um, for a living that sort of shaped everything. And um, just with Collinsville um, in general, I was actually uh, there um, at school when uh, the day that Gulf Whitlam was sacked. And I do remember 
you know, the sadness on many of the teachers and actually even the school kids, you know, from grade seven down knew who Golf Whitlam was yeah. because he was so well um, admired and talked about uh, in that town. Mm. And um, that gave us a little bit of an understanding of, of politics at that time. My biggest uh, problem that I had was with my schooling. I, I wish I could have um, studied a little bit harder. Um, I was way behind and I never really re knew the reasons why I was at school. I just thought that I was going to school because you had to. Yeah. But uh, one of the, the great things is I, I played rugby league, I played cricket and um, played a lot of sport and lived in Collinsville. We then moved to Townsville and from there I joined the railway and I, I worked on all different fields from the welder to a, a navvy where you um, rode on the track on the section cars, quads flying down, um, the track fixing, you know, lifting, yep. packing the line, pulling out sleepers and uh, putting in dogs, bikes. And I, I just love that type of uh, work. And uh, then I got to work out, you know, Mount Isaac, Cloncurry, Julia Creek, you know, to to um, in uh, 47, 48 degree temperatures yeah. sometimes. So you're really out building and maintaining track yes. on the railway. Was there, was there a sense, well, when did you first start work? When did you, when did you um, go into the workforce? Uh, that, that was in 1983. So there was a sense that, you know, a railway was a good, solid government job and something that, you you know, you could stick with. Is that how you imagined it? Did you think, I'm going to work in the railway for my life? Well, um, in those days, you had uh, many types of jobs that you could actually uh, leave school mm -hmm. and um, there was a lot of work in the railway and, and uh, there were 27,000 employees at the time. And um, you always had a guarantee if you kept on visiting the uh, inspector uh, every Friday and ask if there was a job, sooner or later he would give you a job in the railway and that's that's how I got employed. Uh, inspector Stan Fector, uh, he was the first to put us on and I every every week I would go and visit him um, and uh, sooner or later he said, mate, I'm, I, I like your determination and um, I'm going to put you on and give you a job and that's where it all started. And I, I, I just want to say from the time that I was there, it was 20 years mm -hmm. and uh, when I left, uh, my boss put, turned up at the office and uh, he gave us a gold watch. Oh, fantastic. For 20 years service. So I've done. still got that watch. I don't wear it, but, <laughs> and it was very tough at the time because uh, I worked on the track, you know, I was with um, people that, um, you know, weren't from that, you know, highly um, high income sort yep. of like um, type of of people. And uh, all of a sudden I've got a brand new Land Cruiser wagon to work the electorate and I've got a gold watch. And I said, oh, no, I can't wear that gold watch. You can't, can't you know, keep, that, keep, little, keep the watch to yourself. It's just a little bit too flashy for me at the moment. <laughs> So why did you leave? Did you go straight from the railway into yeah. politics then? Yes. Is that how that worked? Yes, I went uh, straight from uh, railway track worker yep. uh, straight to Member of Parliament. So I feel like I, we've missed a step in there in that what caused you to be interested? You know, you talked about Gough Whitlam, but you have to join the National Party before they put you into Parliament. What, what caused you to get interested well, well, in politics and why did you join the Nationals? Well, uh, it was very, very interesting at the time because um, when you um, you work out the Western areas, um, people were sort of like either one or the other. They were either the Labor or the Nationals. And the Nationals had a big history of collective bargaining for the, the farmers. And uh, many, many years ago, you had uh, the country Labor Party where they joined forces together. And I've always found that uh, there's, to the working class people, they're a little bit more um, distance from the Liberal Party than yeah. the National Party. I think this and is a thing, sorry, to, I think this is a thing about Queensland politics that underlies a lot of it and that 
not everybody and particularly people from the city don't necessarily understand that there's these sort of collective roots in the Labor Party and in the National Party as well. And then it's the Liberal Party who are, you know, with the sort of individualism and the free market who can be a bit of an outlier. So is that really how you experienced it? Yeah, that was um, exactly, um, you were spot on. And so you could get away with one or the other, either the Labor Party or the um, the National Party. And, uh, you know, my um, great-great-grandfather, he arrived in Charters Towers in 1873. Uh, we've got a, um, a Danish um, background, Scandinavian background, but um, he took up land yep. and he had three boys and three girls and they all went, the, went into the cattle property industry. Yep. And um, my grandfather, he wasn't into cattle, he was more so into the engineering side of it. So he was um, building dams and, and um, um, fixing um, um, steam trains and and diesel engines and and so we sort of missed that opportunity to go into the the agriculture side to it mm-hmm. so i had a bit of a passion for that sense yeah and uh, back in 1988 uh, when i married heather we bought a small block of land outside charters towers and we only just paid that off it wasn't congratulations yeah, it's quite the milestone you. but it was right at that time when there was a lot of um uh, closures to railway stations and um, uh, track gangs and there was um, a government at the day made a decision, you know, to lay off many Queensland rail employees. So this is really through the sort of 80, the 90s really, yeah, isn't it? sort of through the Goss government. In, in the Goss government and uh, there was two factors there though. I used to go down the Townsville and fish in a national park and um, the Goss government made that decision to uh, ban fishing in national parks and I was told that I mightn't be able to fish in that fishing spot and uh, then I started to see all these railway stations closing down but uh, what frustrated me was that you had these thriving little communities such as Neil Yanonda, you know Max Walton they were thriving little towns but when you close down a railway station then all of a sudden uh, the railway station masters and the lad porters their kids are not there anymore and likewise a truck driver that picked up the goods that serviced those communities where the train stopped their kids weren't going to the school and then you would see um, a domino effect where the school would close down in the corner store and it was one thing after another and all of a sudden you had thriving little communities turning into ghost towns. But not only that, um, the Queensland Rail, there were 27,000 employees. Um, it was the biggest employee of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, South yep. Sea Islanders, and I worked with so many. Lots of Torres Strait Islander people working, you know, building tracks and, and, and that they, sort of they stuff. And they could work, yep. work hard. Yep. Uh, they were great workers. They could spike, yep. you know, they used the hammer, the 14-pounder. Yep. And so we started to um, see a lot of um, those jobs disappear. And uh, there was just at that present moment I sort of was very frustrated and I said, no, I want to get down to Parliament and I want to be able to challenge those politicians um, on decisions they made that, you know, affect uh, rural and regional Queensland. And that's where I developed a passion. And um, I do have to say that um, the because of the lack of education, I really had to work hard um, to try and learn. I started to read the papers to see what Wayne Goss was saying. Yep. And um, So this is sort of – so when did you join the Nationals? Do you remember? Well, that was around 1996. Yep. And um, before that, 
uh, and this is probably where it's been quite helpful in the political arena. It's just um, it all sort of adds up and fits in because I was playing rugby league and I I, I played for the North Queensland Marlins when I was seventeen years old. Oh and wow! I made the um, <clears throat> um, a um, state league grand final where we played winner manly and I was marking um, Gene Miles who was oh, the wow. world's best centre. Quite the claim to fame. So I was yep. seventeen years old. Who won? Uh, they got. They had no. the edge. Winner mainly had the edge. You know. So I had the opportunity to play rugby so what, league. So what position did you play? I played um, in a number of different positions, yeah. and so I was a centre for North Queensland. Somehow I was picked um, in the Queensland under eighteen side, where yep. I played beside Alfie Walters and um, Alfie Langer. Alfie You're going to get that right I'll to the, to the old member for Ipswich. Yes, I'll take that back. Alfie Alfie Langer and Kevin and Walters. the Walters boys. Yes, played with, beside Carrot as well. Yep. And uh, Steve, and um, I was picked in that Queensland under eighteen side, and Wayne Bennett was our coach. Oh wow! So it was it was a good sort of profile building, mm. and uh, it was all that that foundation of of born in Tully, um, you know, brought up in a coal mining town, uh, worked in the railway, played rugby league. Yeah, people knew and you. Enjoyed the fishing, the shooting. Yep. And uh, that sort of um, laid the foundation of the the, the person that I, I really was. Yeah. So you decide to get involved in politics in the sort of mid-90s by the sound of it. You get yourself involved in and people already know you from football. Um, and then tell us about running in 2000 and, and 2004. Was that your first election? And did you have to, you know, look, did you have to kill someone to get pre-selected? How did um, that go? <clears throat> the I was probably fortunate at the time because the electorate of Charters Towers was bigger than Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I, I had that passion, dedication, determination uh, to uh, get get elected and endorsed with the Nationals. But at that time, I didn't have a hope. And uh, I read this book. It was Fred Darley. He was the longest-serving uh, politician at that time, nearly in Australian history. Yep. And his book was called The Numbers. And as I um, started reading that, I understood that um, I cannot just go in there and get pre-selected. I had to, had to get the numbers and do the hard work. Mm-hmm. And so I spent five years um, travelling to all the different towns, Jericho, Aramac, So going Matabara. out to, to the towns and to the National Party branch meetings? Yes, and, and even um, encouraging branches to get up and running again because yep. um, there was a big split within the Nationals, particularly with the gun laws Ah, and, yeah, that's right. It was right about that time. And you fi- we found a lot of branch closures and I just thought, well, if I can get to Jericho and try and encourage them to convince them to get, you know, their meetings up and going again and become an active branch. And so I end up um, getting the Richmond branch up and going, the um, uh, Jericho, the um, uh, Capella branch and also the Claremont branch. Yeah. And uh, when it come to pre-selection, I'd already done the hard yard, spent five years, went through two car motors, uh, virtually financial bankruptcy. But it was very difficult too because we had uh, Anna and Joel and uh, um, Daniel and Naomi was born, well, was two years old when I was first elected. But I was working out Cloncurry and Mount Isa and I'd get home on the weekend and next minute I'd be driving out, driving to Jericho. Yeah, so it's hard and on your family. So my wife, Heather, just couldn't see what on earth I was doing. You yeah. know, why is he doing this? And um, But when it come to pre-selection... You were the man. Um, 
the um, you know there was four of us and they might have had the backing from the management, but I had the numbers. <laughs> That's and, what it's all about. <laughs> Fred Daly was right about that. <laughs> yep. And and I just pat myself of everything that he talked about in his book of how he was able to survive all those years yeah. and how tough it was for him, you know, within the Labor Party of how his seats were um, uh, abolished yep. and how he had to run and how he had to get the numbers to get endorsed for the next seat. Yeah. Look, I've been um, listening to Nancy Pelosi, you know, the um, Speaker of the House in the United States talking about, she talks about you've got to have the numbers. Mm. Um, I think your politics is probably a bit of a world from from Nancy Pelosi's, but there's a fundamental underlying truth of politics that that's what it's all about. Now, to go to your first election, um, when you got elected to, to State Parliament, for Charters Towers in 2004, I mean, there was this very unusual situation that you beat a Labor member. Um, I'd been elected at the the election before in 2001 in a very big, beady landslide. I couldn't, well, you might know, I couldn't tell you that the last time Labor had won Charters Towers, but we won it in 2001. And then um, you knocked off Christine Scott subsequently. So there must have been a bit of excitement in the Nationals about winning back such a heartland seat. And surely in the, in there must have been some support too for the way you'd done it, that hard work you talked about of, you know, building branches back up. What was that like? Well, um, it was a very exciting moment at the time, but very, very exhausting. And I do know during the 10-day count, because it took 10 days, and it was, it was quite interesting, the um, lecture night, um, myself and the Labor, uh, member, mm-hmm. we were neck and neck. Yeah, there, there was there was no it was difference. Very close. Yeah. She worked and, very hard, Christine and ex- Scott. Ex- extremely hard, and there was um, around five thousand pre-poll postal votes. And at the first uh, first, I was behind because the mining town votes came through. That was the pre-polling and the uh, the postal votes. From yeah, the and they'd town. be the bigger boots, I imagine. And they were big boots, yeah. yes. But as time started to to go on, I think it was around the eighth day, eighth day, where I, I slowly started to, you know, crawl in front. And, and how did your family feel in that time? I mean, I imagine that, you know, sometimes it's the case that people's partners are not too disappointed if they lose. <laughs> you know, you, you get your partner back if, if they're not going off to parliament. Well, I think um, with Heather, and I do... Um, acknowledge her contribution and and the the I, I feel sorry for her so much, particularly when I sort of had this passion and ambition where five years I was just going full steam ahead. Um, but when I was endorsed by the National Party, she sort of looked at this and said, "Wow, you know, this is just not an illusion. Yeah. You know, this is this is the real this is the real deal here." And so she be, be got a uh, well, she became a part of the campaign team. Great and. Um, and I just admire the hard work that she had put in at, at that time. And it was a, a different world because I had a bomby car and I went through, uh, like I was saying, I went through a number of car motors yep. and then all of a sudden I've got You've this. got the gold watch and the Land Cruiser. And I'm, I'm playing loud music, you know, on the, the car stereo and I said to my son, Joel, listen to this, and I played a couple of his favourite songs and uh, they were all just so excited. Did you feel... You just touched on something I think is interesting. Did you feel, obviously, you know, getting elected to parliament changes your life, you know, changes your work. Um, it sort of changes your status in the community. Um, two questions. Did you feel like people treated you differently then? And do you feel like it changed you? Did you ultimately feel like it changed you as a person? 
I don't know. And, and it, it's a difficult one to answer because I've always maintained um, humility. Yeah. And um, just working in the railway, I know what it's like, you know, when if you get a big head, um, you realise that you can get knocked off. Someone will let you know. Yeah, they'll let, they'll let you know. And uh, acknowledging that you're here to serve, here to, the, here to serve the community, you know, and when you're elected, it's you're not a boss, you know, that you're uh, accountable to them and when it comes to the election, they decide whether you uh, are in or out. Mm. And um, I believe that over those years that, that has paid off mm. and... And if anyone wants to uh, run for politics and because they believe they're going to get lots of money, I found out that's not the case. It's not that good. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I've known you for nearly 20 years now around the Queensland Parliament and I I think it is true about your humility. And I think that um, you're very, and I sort of touched on this in the introduction, I think you're very much seen as, a, as an authentic character, um, you know, as someone who does bring that background with you. I had a look at, before interviewing you today, I had a look at some of your social media and, you know, there's a bit of, oh, both sides don't understand, um, but there's a lot of local community events, the sort of senior citizens and the country show. What do you think are the main, well, two things, what are the main issues and what do you think are the main things that people are looking for? in a representative. I mean, there's obviously that sense of authenticity. I think that's frankly probably the key to your success. Um, but what do you think people want out of their local member and what do you, what do you think that you're kind of delivering for them? There's always a combination and uh, there's not that big expectation from the member to deliver these great big outcomes. And, um, you know, and I've, I've been fortunate to play a big part in getting $70 million upgrade for um, the Atherton Hospital. Um, I've worked with the community to get a, a new grandstand for Tully and, you know, work with the community and other uh, members of parliament um, in regards to the Mission Beach Boating Infrastructure Project. They're some of the, the big projects you pull off. But people uh, are generally... Whatever their issues that come to you, to them it's the biggest issue in the world. Yeah. And as you approach that issue, you know, you treat it as the most important issue in the world. And even though it's small, you're not pulling off a, um, you know, a, a hospital, mm. you know, but you're resolving their Telstra phone problem that's mm. been there for four weeks and they can't make phone calls, you know, to them that's a big issue. And uh, it's the little things in life that really make a difference um, to people. I think there's, there might be some real wisdom in that because now that I think about it, you know, you've been, what, 17 years in the parliament. You've never been in government, have you? Yes. I do know that over the years, um, dealing with ministers um, in general, if you've got a good enough case and if you're passionate about the issue and you keep in his face about this. Or you her. Know, so, or her. Yep. Oh, you got me there. <laughs> Him or her. And uh, But if you keep in their face, you can get that outcome and you can achieve it. And I always found that when you've got a community behind you, you know, that's when your case is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. But there's so many different um, uh, examples and some are, are small and some are big, but I never forgot this. It's still, um, you know, I think about this a lot, but one of the first issues that um, I helped someone was a bloke that he had um, a most of his foot was missing, mm. and so he had this special sort of boot 
that helped him, you know, walk. Mm. And that boot was everything to him. And he asked me to come over his place after I sent out a flyer to say that I'd be in a particular town in my electorate. I went over there and he just started talking to me about his boots broken, you know, he's fallen to pieces. Yeah. And he's trying to get, you know, a new boot. Yeah. And I didn't know really know what to do at the time because I was first elected. But I took it to um, the heads of Queensland Health. Mm -hmm. They uh, found uh, a government employee to go out there and make an assessment of his boot. And they got it all fitted. And um, months later, I was at one of the rugby leagues games and there was about a family of, of 25 sitting together. And as I was walking over, I could just feel the sense of rapport amongst, you know, that family. Yeah. And then I'd recognised that it was the man's that that <laughs> I, I got his boot sorted out. I'm and, sure you would have helped him if he didn't have a big family. And and, and it's <laughs> and it just just um, you know, you can sort of win big things for yeah. an area, but you do a little thing by helping a bloke out, you know, to get his boot fixed. Yeah. You do one good thing and it spreads, you know, um so afar. But it's the same as the opposite, you know, you do a bad thing, you know, it can work against you too and that's the way I do see things. I think it's really interesting. I think you're right. Um, it's obviously been a successful strategy. A lot of the state politics debate though is, you know, it's not about a man in his boot. It's about bigger development issues, um, often global issues, you know, things like climate change, the rate of taxation, issues in the education or the health system generally. My question for you is what do you think that your political philosophy sort of adds up to? Is there a fundamental change, a different direction that you're looking for North Queensland to go in or is it more about just restoring people's confidence in, in their government and giving them a human being who they can relate to? I do believe... Um and I, I, I remember when I was um, running for, uh, it was a candidate's forum, and they asked um, a question related to euthanasia mm -hmm. and they wanted to know my opinion. And basically I, despite the, some, you know, would say I'm for it, I'm for it, and there was cheers in the audience. And um, But I put a position forward where my father's family, there were seven kids and, you know, it was about um, putting their mum you know, into an aged care facility yeah. and um, they couldn't even make a decision on that, never alone euthanasia. So yeah. I more or less said that I believe, you know, that we need to strengthen palliative care laws yep. and um, make it so, you know, people, you know, are passing away comfortable, mm. um, then taking that decision. And so while I said that, I was quite surprised because the audience was more pro-euthanasia. Um, yeah. But they respected um, my position on that, you know, I held that petition. And um, so everyone out there have got different views. Um, and one thing that's important to me is of those different views that they do have is to respect, mm. respect their views. And this is probably a really uh, a main part about um, uh, democracy is is that I have different views and values. Yeah. And But however, we're not out there to knock and ridicule those. Yeah. And so over the years, I found myself besides the Green campaigning and protesting against coal seam gas. Yep. And next minute I'm down the main street marching with the CMFEU. Next minute I'm marching with the 
the dairy farmers, you yeah. know, to save the the dairy industry. And then I'm storming the Premier's building in Townsville over um, a law that they brought in to ERMPs with the graziers. Ah, uh, yep. And so, <clears throat> you know, you feel that um, a government is wrong about a decision, you know, that you take a stand with the people. And uh, that's probably what's um, developed and gained a lot of respect. And you're going to get people offside mm. in the decision that you make. Um, but at the same time, those people that you do get offside are going to say, well, at least, he, least I, I don't agree with him, but at least I admire the decision that he made or the position that he took. I probably don't agree, but, you know, at least he's got a position on this and I admire the fact that he had a go and tried to make a change. So that is what you you have done. You know, you've marked yourself as, you know, you're not an independent now, you're a member of a minor party, but you've marked out really independent ground for yourself. You know, you, you've over time established an authentic relationship now across three seats. Um, but it, when I hear that, you know, my background, as you know, is a, as a major party person. When I hear that, I think, well, look, a, a few members of the Queensland Parliament can over time um, develop that position for themselves with a series of independently minded views um, some, of, some of which are kind of surprising. But if everybody does that, how are we going to run the show? So I, I guess my question, well, look, it's as much of an observation of, as anything. Do you think that's fair to say that you've kind of, you've, you've, you've made a space for yourself, but it's probably not the case that, that everyone can do that? Are you, are, you, are you happy there or would you like ultimately to steer the whole ship? You know, one of the things is is that um, you've got to be content with your lot because you can't be first in line all the time. And when it comes to um, positioning and, and government, and obviously government has to govern, mm. and, you know, but the whole thing is is that uh, you're there to take your views, your issues. You know, you've won your seat. Mm. There's a seat there in Parliament for you to sit on because you've, you know, played your part, the people have voted, voted you in. So you're there to go down to Parliament to represent your people's mm. views. And just with government in general, you know, there's always a lot of frustrating. We had the Newman government um, at that time declared war on everybody. That's right. And <laughs> there was... Um, but we were trying to shape them back into a position mm. of not selling our energy asset, mm -hmm. assets, as an example. And, um, you know, we, our campaign was quite strong and my campaign was so strong that um, had they have won, we would have seen the energy assets sold here in Queensland. Yep. But um, it's about playing a part with government. You're not going to get your way uh, in everything, mm. but you might be able to persuade them or push them push them hard enough to change the direction so that the impact you think is going to be might be bad mm. ends up being not so bad, you know, after all. And, um, you know, we have seen um, a lot of changes, you know, that we have made that's helped um, better our communities, you know, where we've um, got the sugar marketing bill over the line and uh, which has benefited cane growers. We've got the small, um, <clears throat> small pubs bill, which mm. helps... Um, the small pubs uh, in rural and regional Queensland that uh, don't have to pay the same licence fees as the Brecky Creek Hotel yep. where they only have makes $16,000 a year. Mm. And um, with the visual impaired, yep. uh, we put forward 
you know, a bill into Parliament and now the visual impaired is able to access the disability parking scheme. Oh, and, right. yep. and And so there's, there's um, parts that we have played where we've shaped position and, and had benefited the community mm. as a result of what we've put forward. And we've put forward, you know, over 20 private members' bills, um, mm. the KAP, since 2012, and we have made in, inroads. So we are playing our part. Yep. We're not getting our way all the time. Mm. And a lot of times where we put a, a bill in, the, the government of the day will oppose it. Yep. And then uh, six months down the track, they're putting a bill in and they're doing it. And so, um, and that's what it's about, even though we're not really um, getting the glory for it at the time, but, you know, we have laid the foundations mm. of shaping government in a direction that's better, better, particularly for rural and regional Queensland. So what you're saying to me is that, you know, you do feel like you're having a pretty sound influence from where you are. You touched at the beginning of that answer on um, the Newman government's desire to privatise Electricity, and I just as you were talking, I had a look at um, the 2015 election results. So you spent that term between 2012 and 2015 arguing against the LNP's plan. Then the LNP ran against you at the end of uh, you know the next election, and I see you beat the LNP candidate in a seat they would think probably should be theirs, 65% to 35%. And I noticed that electricity um, privatisation hasn't been back on the agenda. Um, and you'll remember as well as I do that um, that on the night, the first night of the election campaign, Stacia Palaszczuk found herself in Mount Isa um, in the electorate of, uh, of your party leader, Bob Catter's son, Robbie. Was it an issue that you'd really talked about amongst the three of you? you I don't think you'd said anything publicly about which way you'd go if it if it came to it. Um, but was it something that you'd discussed amongst yourselves? And if you had been in a position to choose the government, what were the key things that you were going to put on the table? What do you want for North Queensland? Well, uh, when it comes to uh, positions and obviously mm. when it comes to deciding which way mm. you're going to go, we don't even know that. Um, and um, in the um, 2015 election when the parliament was very tight. Mm. <coughs> Peter Wellington ended up, you know, gave, given the power to um, the Palaszczuk government. That's right. I'll just interrupt you there. I mean, people might not understand that Queensland absolutely has a history of crossbenchers deciding. You know, it's happened twice in your and my living memory with Liz Cunningham um, back in 95 and then Peter Wellington mm. in, in, oh, Peter Wellington in 98 and then again in 2015. So this is not just a hypothetical. <laughs> No, it's not just right. a hypothetical at all. Which way would the crossbenchers go? Back to you. Sorry, Shane. Um, and um, and one of the things is is that we had um, twenty points or twenty policies that we put together. We put them before the LNP. Mm -hmm. We also put them before the Labor Party. And um, you know, it was a number of factors of rural bank. You know, to um, give access to um, um, funds there for farmers to invest. You know, in their crops and and the grazing industry in rural and regional Queensland, but but they were simple, not to close down um, any more railway stations or, or track gangs mm -hmm. and um, no closures of Ergon depots, which is some of the things, uh, the action on flying foxes um, and uh, action of, um, you know, making our waterways safe. These are sort of policies that we would put together and put it before government. And 
the decision is about who is going to best address many of these policies mm. that uh, we put forward. And um, that's and it's always going to be tough no matter which way you go. But one of the things is, is that if you do hold the balance of power, it doesn't matter what government's in there, they can't do anything and they can't do anything bad either um, unless, you know, it goes through you. Mm. So it doesn't really matter who because you, you if You've got there, the final if say. there is concern, if there is concern about an issue of particular government, um, we would make sure that, that we wouldn't allow that to happen in the first place um, rather than um, decisions that are made and a lot of decisions are made now, you know, in the southeast Queensland, particularly with majority of members are down here. Mm. You know, it's about ensuring that um, rural and regional Queensland, less members and um, the north and the far north really have an uh, input in uh, the issues that are going on down here in in, um, in George Street in Queensland. Well, I think the centre of power has shifted that way um, in large part, you know, thanks to the contribution that you've been making over 17 years now. Now, Shane, in, in 2011, you'd been a national and then an LNP member for, what, seven years by that stage of the game, um, and you decided at that moment to leave the LNP and to join what was then the new Catters Australia Party. Why did you do it? Well, one of the, the things was is that when I first joined, I was a Nat. Yeah. And here in Queensland, the Nationals, you know, governed mostly in the last, you know, probably 40 years. And j joining politics, I put a lot of work in to be a Nat. Yeah. And... Then I found myself in a situation that um, we were merging with the Liberal Party, which I never asked for. Um, I didn't agree to from the beginning. And uh, likewise, um, I didn't like the way it was um, where the former leader, Lawrence Springborg, mm -hmm. and John Paul Langbrook were overthrown um, by someone from the outside. Yeah. And I found myself um, in, in a, a party that, was not really the foundations of why I joined this party. And um, Bob Catter was my federal member. He always had been my federal member, uh, very f close family links. And I also played footy with Robbie Catter. Oh, I didn't and know that. We also There's the secret. We also um, uh, were involved with the Young Nats um, over those years. But when it came to the uh, policies of the KAP, mm. um, it was exactly what you know, I believed in, you know, the, like what I was saying there before, you know, the light, the rights to camp, fish, you know, hunt, um, collective bargaining for the farmers and the, and the workers, mm. you know, infrastructure development and getting projects uh, really up and running. It really is a lot of old national stuff, isn't it? I mean, you know, people forget that Bob Catter was a nationals member of the state parliament himself. Um, you know, there's always been this debate. I think people don't understand that Queensland's the only state where the nationals traditionally have been the dominant conservative party. But there's a view now that you've got to win the Brisbane seats, obviously, to win government. So that's exactly what you, you know, you're talking about, that the Liberals, there was the merger and then the Liberals to some extent became dominant. Who's to say where it lands now? Um, but I think, you know, many of these things that you're talking about, they're really what the nationals left left behind. I mean, would you say to some extent that the, you know, the party left you more than you left, more than you left it? Um, I, I would say um, that that would always be that definitely the case. And, and look, I don't hold any grudges at all. 
Um, but I've I've always sort of believed and felt that the move has um, brought us back to where you know my heart is, what what I believe in, and why I ran from for politics from the beginning. And uh, like I was saying, you know, to to look after our jobs, our industries, our workers, our farmers, and it's probably something that it might be difficult. You know, for the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party might be for big business. Mm. You know, the Labor Party might be for the workers. Uh, the great aspect of that we have is that we're for all different people from all different walks of life and background. We're there for the farmers, the workers, marching with the um, the unions, mm. marching with the the dairy farmers, and um, there's a sense of belonging. Um, of um, I'm happy, you know, where I am at this present moment. And uh, we've been working very, very well as a as a as a team. But you know, if you're going to leave, if you're going to leave a major party, and this is always a difficult thing, is that most of those that have left major parties, um, you know, the, I don't know anyone except for probably Dorothy Pratt, mm. um, who won as an independent there uh, for the seat of Nanango, and also Bob Catter. Right. Um, and myself, so it's a it's a big move. It is a big um, move. You could lose next time around, and that'd be that. And the, and and that is it. Yeah. And uh, it was a big risk. And indeed, that's what happened to the other to the other member who jumped from the LNP. Aidan McClendon went from the LNP to the Catters before you did, and mm. he was knocked out in two thousand and twelve. So there's some form there. Um, yes, and there's some form, but there's nothing you know better. When you can actually step out of your comfort zone and overcome and beat the major parties, mm. you know, who's, who's, uh, they've been around since time began. And to be able to um, um, get on top of that and be able to pull it off, it's, you feel that you can actually represent your constituencies from your true heart. Mm. You're not going down there and voting this way because you're told you to, to vote this way or because you have to, and uh, you could get and disendorse, and um, or you got to vote this way. It's about you know r- truly representing your constituents, and you can, you know, go to sleep at night knowing the fact that you know I, I I've played my part. And um, just with survival over 17 years, mm. a lot of people don't see. Um, you travelling 14 hours um, at night time um, and getting to a place at five o'clock in the morning so you can be at the um, mm. the, the school um, student leaders um, induction ceremony. Yeah. And, and all that time away from your own kids while they're growing and, up. And that's right, and missing, you know, hand out medals for your kids mm. or uh, seeing them in your sports days and special events. So there's a lot of things that you um, people don't see um, but uh, at, at the same time, it shapes your character. So what's next for Shane Canute? So I just want to run through some of your election results. I didn't make this clear enough at the beginning. You know, you've been a member now across, what, seven or eight, eight election wins, um, two or three parties, um, and your seat's been abolished twice. So, you know, twice you've knocked off sitting members, first a Labor member, then you beat Rosalie Long from One Nation when when that first seat was abolished and you became the member for Dalrymple. You know, and now your opposition really are the LNP, but at the last election you got three times as many votes as well, the LNP actually came third. Labor came second mm. in your seat um, last time around. So you've you've put them absolutely to waste in what is your electorate now. You've talked about you know, having gotten to a point where after all of these 
years of driving, years away from your kids, years away from your wife, hard work, you know, you've gotten to a position where you you feel authentic in it, you know, you can speak with your own voice and things are pretty secure. Does that mean you... you Go out on top or is there – what's the next thing to achieve? What do you want to do now? It's always a difficult um, difficult to make a decision on where you go from here mm-hmm. considering that um, in the last nine years since 2012 we've seen 100 MPs come in and out of parliament. Um, but to be still – I was one of the ones out. <laughs> I remember that <laughs> too, Rachel. <laughs> I was very sad for oh, it too. <laughs> but but what I always say fine too, because there's there's a, the that element of exhaustion. Yeah. Um it, it takes it out of you. Yeah. Particularly when you've got a seat that's um, abolished and you put so much work into one electorate, you're just starting to get to know the people, friends, build relationships, know them by their first name, help them out. Um, support the community, and next minute is just totally wiped out. And then all of a sudden you're starting again. Mm. And when you're starting again, like it's not in these big rural, rural and regional areas, you're looking at five, 600 kilometres away from actually uh, where your seat was abolished. And there's an expectation that you are a new person up there that's running for parliament. Mm. And um, as I won the seat of Dalrymple and I end up um, being the member for the Atherton Tablelands yep. for nearly 11 years now, um, I then uh, stood for the seat of Hill as mm-hmm. the seat was abolished. There is a lot of people that um, th- were thinking that I was running for my second term rather than my number seventh yeah. um, term. But just with all the experience over the years of communicating with government, with opposition, uh, with departments, um, I have a little bit more understanding on how to communicate, how to work with them, how to work against them and um, how to work with the departments and get get outcomes. Mm. And But it takes a long time to get a bit of an understanding. So sometimes you feel like, yes, you're getting somewhere with your community. If I go out now, um, it all is... That, all that wisdom's lost. All that, all that wisdom's lost. So thank you very much for being the first episode of the Deep North podcast. Thank you very much, Rachel, and you and your team, and I thoroughly have enjoyed this interview. Thank you for joining us on Deep North, a podcast by the McKell Institute Queensland. My name's Rachel Nolan. Our producer is Charles Pigeon. To find out more about what we do, follow us on Twitter at McKell Institute. And if you enjoyed the show, and you care about serious, deeper analysis of Queensland politics, please like and review Deep North to help spread the word.